0: Hey, everyone. Before we get started, we just wanted to say that when we were producing this podcast and this study, we do so well in advance. And uh, we started recording this podcast in the summer, middle of the summer, middle of the pandemic. And as you know, the news cycle continues not only for the country, but for our city and for our church. And just like previous journey studies, we have faith that the books that are chosen speak to our cultures and what we need in the moment more than we would even understand. And we believe that was the case with Mark when the pandemic hit, and we believe that is the case with the journey through Daniel. And regardless of what happens for all of us in the process of listening to and diving into the book of Daniel, uh, we believe that God has a word of truth for all of us, regardless of what we could have known or not known about what this world would bring us. So with that, let's jump into day one of the journey through Daniel. In Daniel chapter one, verse two, it says, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Today, we're diving into the apocalypse, though things may not always be as they seem. This is day one. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story He's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to the Journey Through Daniel podcast. I'm here with Brendan Lang, once again, who is the author of the Journey series. He's writing the commentaries, the discussion questions, all of that good stuff, and helping us navigate the context for Daniel. Hey. How's it going? It's great. Good to be here. Back in the saddle again. Back in the saddle. That's your I'm line. The metaphoric The metaphor. <laughs> or what? How does this? <laughs> Whatever work? this is. Yeah, sure. I'm Tyler. I'm the creative director of the Journey series and designer, helping of the book. I don't know anything creative. I'm probably involved. In you something. help make
1: cool maps for me. I, I kinda make. Tell you what. I make so Brendan's. Maps. Here's what I want. You just make it happen.
0: Yep, exactly. And for the journey through Daniel, we are lucky, blessed to be joined by Stephen Kelly, who is on staff at one of the regional campuses of Willow Creek, Willow, Chicago. Stephen. Thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Great to be with you all.
0: Yeah. What is your role at Willow Chicago?
2: My technical role, I guess, director of weekend services. That's my technical title. And the worship pastor.
0: What's your real? Yeah, (laughs) so you do everything. Worship is what I do. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think the thing about Stephen that is clear from anybody who knows him is that not only is he a great worship leader, but just a great leader, has great wisdom, is able to speak on a variety of topics, Mm -hmm. both culturally, spiritually, and really, in a pastoral way, guide people through cultural experiences. And we feel like with Daniel, we're going to need all the help we can get. So we're going to rotate some people in. You're setting the bar
2: really high, Tyler. Hey, hey, listen,
0: (laughs) I I have yet to set the bar high enough where you haven't exceeded it. So here we go. We're jumping in for sure. But I have a question for you to start out day one on the basketball court. What position do you play? Just curious. On the basketball court. I just watched The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. You just watched it? I just watched it a few a weeks ago. I'm way behind. And it was really great. And it's got me wondering, what position
2: do you play? Steven, what about you? Oh, two guard all day. Two guard? Shooting guard, absolutely. I mean, I was Mike back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> I was just six inches short, that's all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, other than that, you would have been right there absolutely. next to him, right? Yeah, in absolutely. the combine or whatever they do for the sports whatever thing. Yeah. Sports ball. What about you, Brendan? <laughs> well,
1: what do you think? Is there another option besides the one guard? I don't know. One guard. I mean, I'm like five eight. Mike's got six inches on you. He's got almost a foot on me. So not too many options. This is super ironic because I'm
0: the tallest one here. I'm That's six true. two, and my answer is I don't know. I'm terrible at basketball. People are always like, "Oh, you're tall. You play basketball, right?" And I'm like, "No, no, no. When I play basketball, they just tell me to stand out of the hoop and get the ball first. Uh, well, I don't know what position that is. How tall? When was your growth spurt? Freshman year of high school. So like
1: freshman year, at least you could have been like the guy who just you get the ball and you're yeah, but I wasn't
0: because like usually up to that point you start like shooting and stuff uh-huh. and like practicing so that if you get the ball like that's even an option yeah no not the case for me so i mean listen i have a whole opinion on sports metaphors and christianity that we won't get into we need but, more of them right yeah that's what i was thinking <laughs> but you tell me what position that is that i just get I, the i rebound. suppose it depends on your league on my yeah. team you would have been a four i don't yeah, know yeah
2: a forward or a center power forward or a center. Yeah, yeah great
0: i'm all about being a center there when i go. played soccer that's what i was you like you to know, be the, the center, center of everything Sen- center for sure. Well, really excited today because we get your reading about a bunch of people who join a different court. And uh, yeah, see. That's where I was trying. Like, why are you asking? Yeah, why are you asking asking about basketball? A bunch of guys get taken from their native land serving in a different court. But if you haven't done a journey reading with us before, how this works is every day we're going to read, we have kind of a key verse, a day heading that sort of sets the theme for the day. And then we read a commentary that Brendan Lang has authored that really gives us cultural and historical context around what we're reading and why we're reading it and why it is significant. From there, we read a section of scripture. We'll have some reflection questions. But then on the podcast, podcast, we like to have a discussion that really makes this a little bit more applicable, a little bit more personal, and hopefully we'll be able to ask some questions that you yourself are dealing with, because let's be real, we all have the same questions about a lot of this stuff and how it relates to today. So, Brendan, why don't you take us through our commentary for day one? Day one. Even then,
1: God is in control. The book of Daniel begins on a tragic note. Daniel 1, 1 1-2 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, conquered Jerusalem and carted off treasure from the Jerusalem temple, placing it in the temple of his god in Babylon. The events described in these verses took place around 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar rose to the Babylonian throne and his kingdom became the most powerful empire in the world. In that cultural context, it was common practice for kings to steal treasure from the temples of those they defeated and move it into their own temples as Nebuchadnezzar does here. This was a show of political and religious dominance, a way of saying that they and their god were in control. So for anyone watching what was happening, the capture of Jerusalem and the temple treasure would have seemed like a crushing loss for Yahweh, the god of Israel. It would have seemed to most that Nebuchadnezzar and his god Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, were in control of the world's events, not Yahweh. However, a subtle clue in verse 2 tells us that things weren't exactly as they seemed. Daniel 1-2 says that the Lord delivered the articles from the temple of God into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In other words, these events came about by God's own choosing, not by the will of Nebuchadnezzar and his God. This reality is consistent with a theme we will see in every story and every vision in the book of Daniel. When all hope seems lost and God seems absent, even then, God is in control. For corrupt leaders who misuse and abuse their authority, this theme should generate a sense of fear. Their power is limited and time is short. But for the persecuted people of God, it means hope. God sits on the throne of the universe, he is at work, and in the end, he will have the final victory.
0: For day one, we're reading Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Stephen, do you mind taking
2: us through our reflection questions for day one? Question one. How do you suppose you would have felt if you were one of the exiles carried to Babylon? What effect do you think that experience would have had on your faith? Question two. How do you hope to grow through your journey experience? Share your hope with God and ask that he might use the book of Daniel to shape, challenge, and inspire you.
0: All right, Brendan. What's the deal? Who's Babylon? What is this person? What's their beef with Judah?
1: What is this person? Yeah, well, what, like, Babylon actually is personified in other parts of Scripture. Of but. course <laughs> it is. Uh,
0: my mistake is always your accuracy, but uh, for some reason I'm those. I'm just confused. What what's going on here? Who's Babylon? Why do they not like Judah? I don't know if they don't like Judah. They like
1: power. They like money. They like taking over parts of the world. Babylon. It's a city. First off. You know, think Rome, right? There's the Roman Empire that had its capital in Rome. The Babylonian Empire, which is what we're kind of reading about here, is a kingdom that was led at this time by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, he was a general who in six oh five BC, when the events we read about here, he became king at that time and he knocks out the Assyrians, and then he kind of moves into the area north of Israel to a land called Hatu. But what he does is he takes money, tribute from all the kings in that area. Not only that, he also takes some people out of the land. So that's what we kind of read about here about how he takes some of the nobility some of the upper class in the land of Judah and carries them off to Babylon where they would live as exiles so We're not really rooting for Babylon here. Usually you're not. Well, I mean, this is the evil superpower in the Bible. This is one of the great enemies of the people of God. And so what we're reading about here is someone that God has coincidentally raised up, empowered to enact justice in the world. And we're going to talk about that theme more throughout the book. But Nebuchadnezzar has moved in and he's taken money and people out of the land of Judah.
0: And just take us through some of the like ancient history of this, because from what I understood is this is what they would do back in the day is their God lived in a temple. Everybody had their different gods. And when one would conquer the other, they would show their dominance and power by basically removing that God and moving it somewhere else. Yeah, that's another
1: thing the text gets at is this idea that he didn't just take out exiles of the land of Judah. He took away treasures. And this was the tribute that he received from Judah, basically where the people of Judah said, hey, we're going to be loyal to you. We're going to give you this money and you don't do anything to harm us. But it was really common for kings like Nebuchadnezzar to take these treasures, put them in their temple. And this was essentially a show of dominance as a way of saying that their God was in control, not the gods that they had conquered. So if you take Yahweh's treasures out of the temple in Jerusalem and put them in the temple of Marduk in Babylon, this is a way of showing that Marduk is in control of what's going on in the world stage, not Yahweh. It's a way of showing that Nebuchadnezzar, Marduk's anointed king, was king of the world, not Jehoiakim and whomever God may have set in place. And so it was really just a show of dominance.
0: So the nice thing about this book, and we kind of go into the detail and the context for Daniel in the introduction, we've recorded that podcast. So you just listened to one before this or read it in your book. It's a very good narrative for this first half. The scripture is pretty straightforward. They conquered them. They took some people. Among them was Daniel and his friends. Yep. But I'm just curious, why do we always call Daniel by his original name instead of his Babylonian name? And all of his friends, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <laughs> however you say that name. Yeah. Rakshak and Benny. Rakshak and Benny the from Tales. Uh, yep. Why did we call them by their Babylonian names and we called Daniel by his you know, original name?
1: That's a good question. I'll give you a short answer. Basically, the story we know these guys from, they're called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3, the story of these dudes who get thrown into a fiery furnace. That's, Spoiler. That, well, I mean, if you haven't heard this story,
0: <laughs> get <laughs> yeah. ready. It's going to
1: be hot. Yeah, that's what they're called throughout that, that chapter. So Daniel, on the other hand, he gets a new name, Belteshazzar, but he's called that name a few times throughout the book, but usually he's just called by his name, Daniel. The name of the book. That's the best answer I have for you. But what's cool about those names that we can't miss, and we're going to talk about this more tomorrow, is that they're given Babylonian names. And not just Babylonian names, they're named after Babylonian gods, as far as we can tell, especially Belteshazzar. So all the names of these guys before, these are names, the Yah part, right? Azariah. Well, that's the shortened form of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Hananiah. It's a name that means God is gracious. And so we're going to talk about this more tomorrow, but essentially they're being molded into good Babylonians. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he's taking them and reshaping them into new people, people who would fit into his kingdom and who would be ultimately loyal to him. I don't know how
2: much you all did in the intro. Obviously, the Israelites are kind of in captivity, but yep. you know this is the ongoing saga of the Israelites, always rebelling, and so they mm. find themselves in this place. They wouldn't be here had they not once again, in many ways, rebelled against <laughs> the promises of God. And so yep. I don't know how much context that sets. So it's kind we of, haven't
0: we haven't said that, so that's good. Yeah, okay. that's really a big thing to note is that this is the story of Israel and the people of God. Yeah, I mean, really up until present day, honestly, <laughs> we keep understanding the heart of God and then deciding to throw that off, right? Yeah. And it doesn't go well for us.
1: Yeah, Exodus 34. 6 talks about how God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. That's slow to anger. He was really slow to anger with the Israelites. And sometimes we wonder like, why is he so hard on them and sends them into exile? He actually gave them almost a thousand years where he would forgive them over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again, and they still never learned. They still never changed their ways. And so it culminated in this time in the late 7th century, early 6th century, where God finally said, okay, I've made this covenant with you. I've made this agreement with you that if you're going to live this way, here's what's going to happen. He's faithful to that covenant. He's loyal Mm -hmm to that agreement and he sends them off finally. And what ends up actually being really cool, we're not going to talk about this much in Daniel, but the problems they struggle with, a lot of that actually goes away, especially the idolatry. They're wanting to worship all these other gods. You don't see that be an issue when they come back
0: to the land. So there's a reason why God sends them here put through the fire, if you will. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Not to get too far ahead, but I mean, that does set up kind of my next question, which is the theme for today that is really like hammered home. It's this idea that the Lord delivered Judah, which is a pretty compelling way to set up this story. It's not like this is enacted upon them and the Lord tried, but man, he just couldn't save them. And Marduk was way too powerful for the Lord. And no, the Lord delivered them into the hands of Babylon.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. If you read the book of Kings and you hear some of these Assyrian kings and generals come into the land and talk about how their gods were more powerful than Yahweh and how what God has ever saved their people from my God right and this is kind of what's going on here only what Daniel reveals is there's actually a different perspective you talked about how things aren't always as they seem well that's exactly what's going on here it looks like Marduk's control but really the God of Israel is the one who's orchestrating these events who's enacting justice you might say who's giving Israel what they deserve and that might sound really harsh and really terrible for the people of Judah but there's also a glimmer of hope, I think, in all this. What we're going to see throughout the whole book is that that word translated as delivered. It's the Hebrew word natan, which means to give. We'll see this throughout the book. God gives power to people, but God also takes it away. And so when people who are given authority, who are allowed to have power, misuse that power, God takes it away and raises up people who are humble, loyal, and faithful to him. And that's what we're going to see really in every chapter throughout the book of Daniel.
0: There's a lot of themes in Daniel, and we went through this in our introduction a little bit, but Mm -hmm. one of those themes that we hit a lot is the idea that God is in control. God has ultimate power and it will get better in due time. But for me, that's very reassuring on paper. And when I read it in the book of Daniel, that sounds great. It also seems like a really good way to keep people happy when they're powerless, right? It's like this future of hope is just dangling like a donut on a stick, you know, in front of them. And if they chase that, then eventually they'll hit a brick wall and they'll be done and they'll get whatever this prize is. But it also seems like a really good way to keep people who are powerless, Hmm. powerless. Knowing that God is ultimately in control, and this is a major theme of this book, how should we act in like an everyday mode of understanding the power that we might have, but also the power that is enacted upon us.
2: As I think and reflect on this story, you know, I think the Israelites always wanted control, when they made the golden calf. And so I think going back to this, we don't want to trust God's faithfulness to us, even though they've seen God's faithfulness. So I think for the Israelites, they have always had this wanting to see, walk by sight and not by faith. And when they were with God, God provided. When they trusted God, Hmm. God provided. And then as soon as God provides, we go off and we recreate God in our own image. And so for me, I think the symbolism of even Nebuchadnezzar kind of taking their trinkets, you know, in the Ten Commandments, He said, don't make any image of me. And so that really wasn't defining who God was just because you even had some of their trinkets in your court. That didn't define who God was. But for people that put the focus on image and power, and as you can see, I think even reading onto the other verses, who Nebuchadnezzar chose, he wanted those to be perfect, well-fit. It was all about the image. It's all about what you can see. But God is always saying, no, no, no. That's not how I'll evaluate power. Hmm. I give power to the powerless, but you can't control it. And the moment we start controlling, Controlling it, I think, is when we (laughs) start to create God in our own image and we start to, you know, be divisive and we start to, you know, all of those things. So for me, I think that's what's interesting to me with these first couple of verses. For sure. So the thing that I think
1: I would just want to name is that it's really important who is saying that and how it's being. Like, that's a phrase that can be used to manipulate people, this idea that God is in control. And you can use it to say that God is behind what I'm doing. And the truth is, yeah, God is allowing things to happen. But what's clear in the book of Daniel is that God isn't always for the Nebuchadnezzars. God may give Nebuchadnezzar this power, but if we keep on reading, you know, spoiler alert, he's going to have a great fall. So God gives power, but God can also take it away. So when we see it in the book of Daniel, this phrase, this idea that God is in control, that God is the one who's ultimately going to orchestrate events to his own end, to his own good, he's doing it on the behalf of people who are hurting, people who are suffering, people who are experiencing oppression like Daniel was in exile, like people later would in the second century BC. We've talked about this in the intro, people who are suffering at the hands of another tyrant king. And so it's a reminder for those people that there is hope, that this isn't how things are always going
0: to be, that God is ultimately going to make things right. Yeah, the message is from God to the powerless, yeah. not the empowered to the powerless. Right. right. And yeah. that's the difference here. I think very often we find ourselves in this story and we think that we are the powerless. And in reality, we're the ones with power, trying to tell other people hmm. in power how it should work,
2: right? It's a kind yeah. of a confusing dichotomy of power. No, I agree with that. I mean, I think God certainly stands on behalf of those that are broken. And as an African-American male, I think about the power structures that be. And yes, mm-hmm. there is this sense that those in power are telling me who I am and how I should behave. But as I journey with Christ, I see the measurement of success, the measurement of power is different. Yeah, It isn't worldly power. It isn't the power to impose on others. It's the power to serve and the power to love. And that ultimately gives me purpose and fulfillment that the others cannot Mm. And so I think the definition of power and who's powerless and who's not, if we look at it from a worldly perspective, yes, it's about who has the money, who has the status. And those things have currency in our culture. But Mm. in the currency of the kingdom, that isn't. That Mm. isn't what provides peace. That isn't what provides joy. That isn't what provides, you know, reconciliation and relationships. And so that kind of power is always available to the powerless. And you don't have to usurp yourself, you (laughs) know— over someone to attain that kind of power. As and it I turns think out, yeah. You actually yeah. should
1: do the opposite, right? I mean, yeah.
2: And that's hard for me as an African-American male of someone who's oppressed. I'm like, hey, I want hmm. to be able to dictate my own terms, but that's hmm. actually not the kingdom of God. And that's now how he equates power. And so the shifting and turning upside down of even our power structures, I think, is hard for self-centered people, regardless of whatever your race is, to acknowledge.
0: And one of the major themes of Daniel, it's kind of our theme that we're embracing as our, you know, if we had one theme of this whole thing, particularly in the season that our culture is going through with some racial reconciliation that needs to happen, obviously, like very much so in our media with the election that's coming up, the fact that we're amidst a pandemic. I mean, there are so many worldwide issues that everybody is on the same level playing field. The question is, do you have eyes to see the world and people and creation the way that God does? And that's what Daniel deals with. And that's Mm -hmm. why this book is really perfect for this time. You know, we talked in the introduction about this idea of what is apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. The word apocalypse has an association with tribulation and revelation and the end of the world. But apocalypse is just an unveiling. It's yeah. a revelation of how things really are through God's eyes. And I think that's the challenge for us amidst this mm-hmm. season. I mean, let's be real. This is day one of the reading. On day seven of the reading, we're all going to vote for who's the leader of the United States. Like, hopefully you go out in there and vote. Go vote. That's like your your thing. Like this is a huge time to try to understand. Okay, how does God look at all of this? How does God see the world? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for both of you, what should we keep in mind going through Daniel in this discussion that can be really divisive. It can be really partisan. But really, our goal is not to be partisan in terms of the world, but be partisan towards the eyes of the way that God sees the world. How do we do that?
1: Yeah, it's loyalty to God. when you have loyalty to God, you have loyalty to the people that he loves. And you see the world the way God does. I mean, I love what you're saying, Stephen, this idea that the way the kingdom of God is organized is upside down. It's where those who are humble, those who serve, those who embrace lower positions, who say, I'm okay with this meekness. Not only that, but I'm gonna empower those who don't have power. That's the way the kingdom works. And that's what we see throughout the book of Daniel. God, in every story, he takes those who are hurting those who are placed in really difficult positions, people like Daniel, people who are in exile, people who are suffering under a series of tyrant kings, really. That's what these visions and dreams are going to talk about, is how the people of Judah would continually experience this. God, in his own time, is going to raise up those people, because that's what the kingdom of God really looks like. It's elevating those who choose to stay faithful, who choose to stay loyal, and not only that, but those who embrace a posture of humility and don't try to usurp those who try to get power for themselves. If you want power that matters, you embrace position. Like Jesus did. Yep.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say I actually had the privilege of teaching from Daniel three a few weeks ago. I don't know if y'all knew that. And one of the things, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know about the story about the fiery furnace. But I was asking myself the question, kind of similar to what you were saying, Tyler. What gave them the courage? Hmm. In many ways, to say, you know, even if God doesn't deliver, like, what did they know about God and the kingdom of God that Mm -hmm. made them so courageous? And as I'm thinking through that, and to your question, like, how does God see the world? My theology, something that I've been wrestling with, any theology that wounds or marginalizes people, groups, Is incompatible with the kingdom of God. And you you look at the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor spirit, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted, blessed are the merciful. blessed are the meek. God is describing this kingdom. And when you talk about power, it's usually at the expense of exploiting someone else. And so I think, how does God see the world? I'm starting to take on that mantra, like anything that wounds, anything that divides, it's incompatible to the character of Jesus, incompatible to the kingdom of God. That isn't God's currency.
0: That's beautiful. That's such an easy way for us to like, me personally too, I don't know how to navigate the world. I don't know how to navigate the election season. I don't know how to navigate anything. Does it wound, you know, and does it raise up the least of these or is it marginalizing people? It's a great filter to put it through and we are just getting started. That's right. Daniel has so much in here to say about all of this. And the nice thing about it is Daniel wasn't the end of the story. We have Jesus who came and is the ultimate example of doing that. Right. And he doesn't do that by confrontation. He does it by subverting politics establishment, people hierarchy. Like all he does is subvert it and ultimately leads to dying on a cross. And that's the only thing that Mm -hmm. can truly... And it's
1: in that, sorry to cut you off, but it's that act of suffering, that act of service, that act of standing in place of his people. That's the thing that actually gives him a position of power in the kingdom of God. We read the New Testament and not just that, Daniel 7, he embraces this position of a son of man. We're going to talk about this son of man who suffers on behalf of God's people. When that suffering happens, that's when power is given. That's when the kingdom is given. That's when Jesus isn't thrown at a seat next to the Father. And so if that's the way Jesus lives, that's
0: the way people in the kingdom of God ought to live as well. Buckle up, Daniel's gonna be a whole lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, Children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org. And follow us for updates at Willow Creek NS on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org. We'll see you next time.